0: quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates national average 12-month savings of 793 dollars by new customers surveyed who saved with progressive between june 2021 and may 2022 potential savings will vary canva
1: presents unexplained appearances it was an ordinary workday until
2: that presentation appeared out of thin
1: air also it's eerily on brand
2: Everyone, you're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me.
1: I'm Felix. And I'm Me here.
2: And how are you guys doing?
1: Great. Doing okay. The Thank weather's you. getting a little chilly. Fall is in the air.
2: Anything interesting happening to your day?
1: Well, I have to tell a little story, which is I'm walking to campus this morning. Okay. And I see one of our dear friends who teaches at Sloan.
2: Uh-huh. And
1: first thing out of her mouth, to asked me about the podcast. And it's really <laughs> nice. And she said she had this wonderful thing happen yesterday. Hmm. She said, I finished teaching, and then one of my students came up to me and said, I was so happy because this case that we just did was written by the host of my favorite podcast. And of course, in my mind, I was like, which one of my brilliant cases is this <laughs> yes, student referencing? Yeah, I was like, yes. yeah. and then of course the student said, yeah, it's by this young me Moon. She's my favorite on the podcast. And I have to just say, like I said, it's the story of my life. We're all just in the shadow. Of Young Me Moon. <laughs> Hardly. And the great cases she writes.
0: Everyone I, so, turns out to oh, be a clown. It's hey, the Midas Touch. Stop the Midas Touch. Okay. We're all just living in the so, shadow of Young Me Moon. <laughs> the saying. subject. <laughs> and look, she's blushing. I know. Which is no. really
2: amazing. Oh my yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We need to get to tonight's episode, guys. Well, and, I don't enough, know. I think enough. we should do some more of this, well, Felix. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I
0: felt we were in a good place. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, listen, we do have to get to tonight's episode. But before we do that, First of all, we need to thank everyone for all the emails you guys have been sending in. Mm. It's been just so fantastic.
1: It is. The reason we do this podcast is, of course, to spend time with each other. But to get these kinds of wonderful missives from folks and hear what's on your mind and then give us ideas for future episodes is yeah.
2: just fantastic. Yes. So thank you to everyone. If you would like to send us an email, our email address is harvardafterhours at gmail.com. And maybe next episode we'll start going through some of these emails Mm. and answering some of your questions. Yeah,
0: that would be really nice.
2: In addition, if you enjoy this podcast and you would like to support us, the best way to do that is to give us a rating or a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We would really appreciate it.
1: That would be great. But
2: Mihir, you brought in a topic for us to talk about.
1: Yeah. So there is really this remarkable confluence around the world of concern about housing and housing costs. Mm. And I just wanted to take a moment to think with you all about what is going wrong in housing markets around the world. Or maybe nothing's going wrong. But I'd love to just hear your thoughts about that. That's a great topic. And then
2: there are bunch of other random headlines i thought we would do quick takes on as well how does that sound
1: yeah let's, let's do it yeah i think we should come up with a name for this random headlines topic because we like doing it right <laughs> we do well we have an amazing marketing
0: person oh my memories, god so let's oh, get yeah. a break come up yeah. with some, okay yeah. we'll be back in a second
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay me here
1: yeah so let's talk about housing So if you look around the world, it's getting to the level where people are genuinely starting to call this a housing crisis. We're observing prices shooting up just in the last several years of 30-40% in different kinds of markets. More importantly, the way to think about housing is to think about it relative to income. We have markets where median prices are 50 times what salaries are. Just
0: astounding, yeah. Which
1: is just by any measure really remarkably high. That ratio alone over the last 20 years, has been growing and growing. Mm -hmm. It's starting to dictate political actions. So campaigns in Canada, in Japan, in Germany, are being actually dominated by questions of, should we have a tax on foreigners buying houses? Should we cap rents? So this is no longer on the periphery of politics. This is now becoming central to what is happening in politics and economics. So I just wanted to get your sense, first off, is there... A housing crisis around the world? Or is this just headline writers trying to make a big bunch of fuss about nothing?
0: Yes. So I think it is a crisis in lots of places. It's also true that if you look at a country and you look at the average stats... It often hides these dramatic differences. So here, for instance, for the United States, if you're asking in the last 10, 15 years, the ratio that you just explained me here, income relative to housing prices, it actually hasn't moved so much if you look at the average. But then you look at San Francisco, you look at New York, you look at Seattle, and it's completely out of control. Mm -hmm. Even more worrisome Some of the trends, so for instance, if you look at housing starts, how many new homes are brought to the market every year, that number has been declining since the 1970s. And the most dramatic decline is in homes that often people refer to as starter homes, homes right. that are not so expensive. There, the supply of these starter homes is down 80% from the 1970s. And particularly pronounced in a few urban markets, the cities where everybody would like to live, the situation is nothing short of dramatic. Yeah, And we don't have... I think a super clear policy prescription what to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Young Me, what do you make of all
2: this? I agree with Felix completely. And it's the one thing that you can run into someone from Singapore or from Sweden and have right. a conversation and find that the themes are remarkably the same. Yeah. And the reason I would call it a crisis is because when people can't buy homes, You not only get inequality with respect to quality of life, because, you know, homes tend to be nicer than places you rent. They tend to be in nicer neighborhoods and so on. But it also exacerbates wealth inequality, because for many people, their homes are their largest investment. And so, as Felix said, it's just a very simple math problem. We have more demand than supply. And the way the math should work is the supply of new houses should track with population growth, particularly in the cities that Felix was referring to. But it doesn't even come close. Right, And the situation is getting worse as opposed to better. Yeah, And so, yeah, I think it's very aptly referred to as a crisis.
1: And it's not just about buying homes, right? It's showing up in rents. Yeah, So renters are also struggling with rising rent levels mm-hmm. that makes this just a larger and larger share of monthly budgets. Mm -hmm. So the other puzzling part about this to me is, so there's all this demand for action, but it feels like many of the potential responses only exacerbate the problem. So as you put it, young me, there's this imbalance between supply and demand. And what often ends up happening in these settings is we think about, well, we have to make it easier for people to buy. Mm. You know, one example would be, you know, in the United States, we have tax incentives for owning a home. And for some people, that feels attractive. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah, people need help to buy Mm -hmm. homes. So Mm -hmm. obviously, we should be providing more help to buy homes. But, young me, to your point, if the problem is this chronic imbalance, then you're making it potentially worse. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you all think of as potential ways out of this. How would you kind of approach this problem?
2: So I think... First of all, understanding the root cause of this thing, I think it would be a much easier problem to solve if we were dealing with a situation where everybody was losing. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's not the case. There are losers, but there are a lot of winners. And one of the big winners in this, if you are an existing homeowner, you're winning right now. And if you're a homeowner, it is a very natural instinct to therefore not welcome a bunch of new affordable housing that might mm-hmm. impede the return on your own investment in that home. Right. And what this means is that there is a lot of political pressure in all of these cities to constrain supply. In fact, it's hard for me to think of another prominent consumer industry. That places such a severe constraint on how much supply can be produced. And what this means is if you're a real estate developer and there are really tight limits on how much housing you can build, your incentive is, to the extent that you can build, is to build higher margin, higher priced homes.
0: Of course. And the example
2: I've used before is... Imagine if car manufacturers were limited to building only, I don't know, 20,000 cars a year. What would happen is that they would only build high-margin, expensive cars. Building anything low-margin only works if you can make it up in volume. Mm -hmm. And so the only way out of this mess, in my mind, is something that shakes loose this notion that if you are a homeowner, you can somehow, through the way our political processes work, prevent additional affordable housing to be built in your area. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. we don't address that problem, yeah. and NIMBYism is not just an American phenomenon, it's alive and well around the world. And so that to me is the core of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We can put some numbers on it. I think that show just how extreme the effect is of all of these restrictions on land use. If you take a quarter acre in a city like Boston, land use restrictions increase the price of that land by about $50,000. If you look at San Francisco, that same land, the increase in prices as a result of land use restrictions is $400,000. So this is just the land. You don't have a house yet. You have nothing. Mm. You
1: just have the land. The amazing thing about that is... First off, it's really just about subdividing land, right? Yes, and that's all it is. So you think about all the other things, the zoning restrictions that would impede you from building height restrictions or anything else, that's on top of all of that. Yeah. So we should start understanding zoning, mm-hmm. just like it's zoning taxes. Yes. It's not zoning, it's zoning, zoning taxes. taxes. <laughs> yes, yeah, and yeah. I think that young me is a solution a little bit to your framing problem, which is how do we get the political will to call this for what it is, a big supply problem, that is really being caused by these remarkably protective interests. And maybe
0: the tensions are greatest in the United States because being a homeowner has these really unique advantages. Because unlike the rest of the planet, we have... 30 year mortgages with fixed interest rates. That is not something that's available anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Typically, the terms are much shorter, the interest rates are variable. So, I feel the tension is particularly big in the US because we have an exceptionally high home ownership rate, mm-hmm. and then we have this unique financing model on the one hand, wonderful. It's created a lot of homeowners, but it's now also created a political problem that I feel is like super hard to solve. Yeah, yeah. I'm really yeah. glad
1: you brought up the financing piece of this. I knew I would do you a favor. Of
2: course. His eyes lit it. <laughs> I'll give you back some
1: supply chain thing sometime later, Felix. <laughs> but it's hard not to like include a discussion of interest rates in this story, right? Which is you have really low rates and we've had really low rates for a long time and that yes. makes financing super cheap. Yeah, but it also makes housing as an asset Asset super desirable because yeah. you're like why would I put my cash <laughs> you That's know if, right. you, if you're a wealthy yes, person right. why don't you buy yeah. another home yeah and so it has all these perverse consequences mm-hmm. but it's all part and parcel of and this is the crazy thing young me if you go to like fifty thousand feet right <laughs> which is you know all in the name of stimulating the economy we keep rates low. And in that process, we create problems in asset markets, which make prices rise, which make it harder and harder for people, especially on the low end of the income spectrum, to rent and buy homes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so there is this kind of upside down, you know, Alice in the Looking Glass kind of aspect to all this. And
0: every intervention that you see, for instance, I thought that law. That Argentina passed, where they said one way to protect renters is to make the contracts a little longer. So instead of having a standard contract Mm -hmm. of about two years, you extend it to three years. And the idea Mm -hmm. was to create predictability. Guess what happened? homeowners, the landlords, they panicked, they jacked up the rents Mm. even before the law went into effect. And then a surprisingly large number of people just took their properties off the market. Right. So the housing supply contracted right at the moment when you're at the beginning
1: of a crisis already. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this is, you know, you referenced nimbyism, of course, which is not in my backyard, but there is now a movement called yimbyism, (laughs) <laughs> yes, in my backyard, and really, ultimately, young me. You know, your deep point from earlier is we've got to change that logic, yeah. <laughs> and yes. we've got to get people to say yimby and not NIMBY.
2: Yes,
0: and just the realization how scarce land is. Like yeah. L.A. has, sorry, young me has eighty-four golf courses.
2: <laughs> okay, so even I would admit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's too much.
0: If we do away yes. with four of those golf courses we could house 200,000 people. Isn't that amazing? Four golf courses less, 200,000 housing units. And even though there's this housing crisis, we have not quite come to the realization every plot of land is really valuable. So you can look at all of these problems and say, well, it's like, you know, four or five golf courses, that doesn't really make a big difference. And I think among politicians there's sort of this search for what is the big solution out there that yeah. is going to solve everything. I think it's a million small things that we need to do better. Yeah.
2: I agree with you Felix although I think all of the million little solutions that you talk about they have to tackle the hard question, the NIMBY question. Are we going to let more people who occupy different levels of income coexist In a single neighborhood. And if we're not willing to have that conversation, I mean, what's amazing to me is when I look around the world and I look at the political discourse around this, I see all the kinds of ideas that do everything but force us to have that conversation. So for example, let's impose taxes on foreign buyers or let's do rent control or let's give people better subsidies for buying new homes. All of that stuff sort of nibbles around the edges, but doesn't actually get to the problem, which is we need to build more affordable homes. Supply,
1: supply, supply. Exactly.
2: Which means we have to have a hard conversation about what spaces we need to now take over for housing. And we have to have a conversation about vertical construction. The density, yes, totally. absolutely. Building things yeah. up in the yeah. air. If yep. we all want to be able to live in the places where there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. It's interesting, right? You can go to some of the most progressive cities in the world, and they're progressive <laughs> about everything except this.
1: Except this. Everything yeah, exactly about, right. oh, you're going to build a big
2: yeah. affordable housing unit that's 20 stories high down the road? No. That's the response. Yeah.
1: This is where like the hypocrisy can be really ranked. It reminds me of... We used to think of cities, like people like Jane Jacobs would think about cities as these places where you run into people that you don't otherwise run into. (laughs) And it was about density. Mm -hmm. And it was really about mingling with people Mm -hmm. of all different Mm -hmm. types. And that was like a really powerful idea Mm -hmm. in urbanism like 100 years ago. And we've lost that idea. And you have to buy into that idea again. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. somehow we've lost that. And this, of course, just represents everything else that's kind of going on in the world, young me, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. which is more stratification, more polarization, less mingling. And it all has to get ultimately solved with cities and interactions of Mm -hmm. people where they live. Mm -hmm. So look, there are no easy answers here. But we've kind of at least begun to explore what some of the issues are on the supply side and otherwise. And it's just such an important part of people's lives because it's not just the amount of money they spend, but it's also how they live. And I think it makes it really an issue that we all have to address, politicians and all of us. To your point, young me, start to take actions in your community that might actually alleviate this underlying problem.
2: Yeah, that might be the best advice. Yeah, yeah. Because this is a point of discussion in every community around the world. Yeah, yeah. And so really think deeply about what side of that debate you want to be on. Yeah, exactly. Whether you're a homeowner or Mm -hmm. not.
1: Start your own Yimby chapter. (laughs) There you go. Very good.
2: Okay, random headlines. You guys ready?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
2: Here's a random headline that caught my eye. Amazon is now paying for college for its workers. Mm. Any hourly employee working as little as 20 hours a week is going to be eligible for this. They're not the only companies. Walmart is also fully subsidizing college tuition and books for more than a million full and part-time employees. Target is now launching something similar. So what did you guys make of this whole story?
0: I mean, my first response would just be, this is competition in a really heated labor market where everybody's scrambling to get workers to join their firm. And there's always this puzzle why don't you just pay more? Why do you choose to give a particular service, a particular right. amenity? Right. Why not just dollars? And I think in the case of education, it's relatively obvious because these programs take years. Yeah, And so one of the aspects that I don't like so much is it feels a little bit like healthcare, where the moment you lose your job or the moment you switch your job, you lose health insurance, you lose your tuition support for the college that you're in. And I think I would love it better if they just paid more. And if people freely decided what they want to do with the money, maybe it's college, maybe it's not college.
2: Felix, it's funny that you said that when I read the news. My first thought was, you know, how mobile carriers, they'll give you a free phone as a form of lock-in. And I thought, this is their version of the free phone, right? They're giving you college tuition to lock you in. In a context of a market where there's just incredible turnover. yeah,
1: I mean, I think it does potentially serve this role of like reducing turnover. And that is kind of in a way a cynical intention. The other cynical intention might be, for example, that this is something that you can take away later more easily than you can take away an increasing wage. Right, I hadn't
0: even thought about that. Yeah,
1: well, you have to be cynical to really go there. (laughs) But I confess that I actually love this story, and I'm not love that just because I happen to be in the education business, like you two. But I love the idea of employers emphasizing education and training and more skills in the workplace, and I like the idea of it binding employers to employees a little bit more. I like the idea that we want our employers to play a more significant role in reskilling and skilling our workers in new ways. I think that's kind of fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I I get the cynical motivations that may be at play here. But there's something about this that makes me feel pretty darn great. Of all the things in the world to promote, I'm okay with employers promoting education. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Imagine Mm -hmm.
2: you run HR at a place like Amazon or Walmart. This is exactly the kind of conversation that you feel like is just a complete win-win. Yeah, I mean, it is something that you can legitimately feel good about offering your workers. On the other hand, exactly to Felix's point, it is probably going to reduce turnover. Yeah. And then there's a part of me, you know, I remember when Bezos stepped away from running the company last year, he announced that his next mission was for Amazon to be the best employer on earth. Right, And I think people really questioned whether he was sincere about that. And my opinion on that is I do think he is at the stage of his life where he is thinking deeply about his legacy. And he's thinking about how can we continue to be this profit engine, but at the same time do things for our workers that will be both perceived as being good for them and actually being good.
0: It matches the Amazon spirit quite well, right? So it's sort of this idea that everything in your operations can be improved and you can find ways to make it better. The leap to the best jobs <laughs> is maybe <laughs> just by the nature of the yes. work at Amazon, yeah. very where, good you know just. These are really tough jobs. Yeah. So so true. I don't really know what best jobs means in that context. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It is hard to know about the sincerity of it. But what I do know, though, is they are already the most influential employer in the world. And so the way they behave has ripple effects in labor markets everywhere (laughs) because it's going to have impact not just within Amazon, but it is rippling through everything Mm -hmm. that happens in the economy. Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. so I hope he's yeah. sincere in what he says.
2: Yeah. So me here, you brought in a different headline you wanted to talk about?
1: In fact, young me this relates to a headline that I saw that was kind of just startling, which is about the composition of college-age populations in the US, which has shifted really dramatically towards women and away from men.
2: Yeah, I saw that. So
1: we are much more like 60-40 in mm-hmm. favor of women. Yeah. And so I'm curious what you make of this. Is this just perhaps some natural phenomenon that we should embrace? Or is there a little bit of a crisis brewing in this data? The really important word that you started out
0: with is composition. So it's not as though men don't go to college not as often anymore as they used to. In fact, college participation of men plateaued after the Vietnam War, and there just isn't much change. And then historically... Girls exceeded in elementary and in junior high and in high school, and then they didn't go to college. And that has changed. So you shouldn't imagine that all of a sudden there's like a generation of men where going to college is no longer what they do. That's not what the data show. There's just this additional gain that women make when it comes to college attendance that I think is, by and
1: large, fabulous news. Oh, huh, interesting. Young me, what do you make of this?
2: It's fascinating to see not just the gap, but how it has been widening over the years. I mean, we're not that many years away from the ratio being two to one, twice as many yeah. Yeah. women graduating yeah. from college as men. And that gap, by the way, cuts across race, geography, socioeconomic background. And so one of the underreported facts about college admissions is it's become easier to get admitted into colleges particularly competitive ones, if you're a man as opposed to a woman. But here's some other facts that continue to be true. Men still dominate the top positions in industry, whether it's finance, consulting, media, entertainment, politics, whatever. And there are still salary gaps as well. So in my mind, this is one of those trends to keep an eye on. Am I alarmed by it? No, I mean, we went for years where women were underrepresented among the college yeah, ranks. Yeah, yeah. Now they're overrepresented. And so it will be interesting to see how this plays out over time. Yeah. But I am not alarmed by it. I'm intrigued by it. I think it could lead to some interesting dynamics over the next decade or two when it comes to industry.
1: So I'm always happy to be the alarmist. <laughs> so let me try it, try it out for size. So, you know, young me, you're raising the paradox of this, which is, mm-hmm. is this really the moment to be talking about about how men are not getting their fair share. (laughs) Like it feels kind of counterintuitive and paradoxical in this moment to be emphasizing that. Mm -hmm. I think the problem that strikes me is when young men find themselves at sea at this particularly fragile time in their life, and if what is happening here is we have a class of men who are a little bit confused and at sea, which is what some of the evidence would suggest, that shows up in the data five, 10 years later in bad ways. And that, I think, is the alarmist take on this.
0: What I find very interesting about this is you could have reported the stats as saying nothing much to say about men in college. And there's this amazing story about women. Now we finally see them enter college Mm -hmm. at much higher rates. And I find it interesting that we report the stats in a way that makes it zero-sum, Right, So every time the fraction of women goes up, the fraction of men has to go down. So we can't tell a positive story. And then I was just amazed how something, which is at first blush good news, led to these quite alarmist responses across the... Like everywhere I've seen Mm -hmm. the headlines, Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. was in a context of, oh my God, what is happening here? Mm -hmm. Like what exactly
1: are we worrying about? Mm -hmm. So by this logic... It's just the triumph of women. Is that right? That's right. So in equilibrium, if we're at a state where women are two-thirds of college graduates, yeah. that's good with you?
0: I mean, we had for many long years, we had two-thirds of people in college were men. And, and that was kind of
1: problematic.
2: I think that if this is a symptom of something deep, yes, then exactly. absolutely we should be paying attention to that because you don't want half of the population to be losing itself in this way. That doesn't mean that the solution should necessarily manifest in 50% of colleges now being filled with men and women. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that the solution to that is a bunch of other things, structural and familial and community-wide that we need to be doing to make sure everybody has an equal opportunity to thrive in all the ways we want our young people to thrive. The trend itself on the face of it, I'm less concerned about because I don't necessarily know that college is the solution for a lot of people who are lost. Sure. And then the second point I'll just make really quickly is I think it's a mistake to assume that this is any kind of equilibrium. I think that every generation is impacted by the generation that went before. You're looking at a generation of women who were raised by women who didn't have the opportunities that a lot of women do now. And so they have a set of aspirations. You're looking at a generation of young men who look ahead at the men that went before them, and they all had those opportunities. So maybe they take them for granted and are pursuing other things. I mean, these things move in cycles. And
1: just to be clear, I I think the root cause underneath the data is really what the interesting question is. Mm -hmm. And we don't know. And we can read it in a lot of different ways. The reason I'm glad we're having this conversation is because it's such a hard conversation to have. Mm. (laughs) And we may wake up in 10 or 20 years with a legacy that is going to be more complicated.
2: Or? Where women rule the world. Yeah,
1: who knows? (laughs) Where
2: women are the majority in (laughs) boardrooms, in C-suites. And that is a
1: great place to end up. So I would sign up to that world. Yeah.
2: So Felix, what did you bring in?
0: I saw this headline that actually goes back to something that you talked about me here on the show before. Carbon capture. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. And you explained, oh, it's this. technology somewhere in the future. And now it's real. There is a first facility that is a direct air capture of carbon in Iceland of (laughs) all places. And
2: Felix, just to be clear, this is that plant that sucks carbon dioxide from the air. Yes. And then injects it underground where it mixes with water and turns into rock and locks away the carbon. Yes.
1: Yeah, it is. It's exactly that kind of technology. And so the company that's doing this is a actually a Swiss company and it's really yeah. interesting. And it's at a small scale. Yeah. If you look at the video of the place, it's tiny. Yeah. It's actually just these little eight container boxes <laughs> that are stacked. Yeah. And they're sucking air, they're taking out the carbon dioxide, just as you said, young me. They're putting it together with water and then they're burying it and they're basically turning it into rock. Rock. Yeah. The company I talked about is carbon engineering, and they are developing something that is way larger in the southwestern United States and in Scotland that will do this for almost 2,000 times the amount of carbon capture Mm -hmm. that this one is doing. And so it is real. And I think it's incredibly exciting.
2: Are there any downsides at all?
1: So it is currently very expensive, although that's not entirely surprising when you develop a new technology. Mm -hmm. There's only Mm -hmm. one downside to all of this, which is we don't want to go into a world where we think this is going to solve everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which is, mm-hmm. I think one should feel really optimistic about this development, really appreciative of it and excited about it. Yeah, But don't think it's any reason to not really think hard about policies that will reduce emissions. <laughs> so you have to like both really appreciate the technology, but also then don't overread it as the solution to everything that is going on in the world.
2: But this might be one prong of a very multi-pronged approach we need to take. A
0: little bit like in energy generation where we have now many more ideas how to do this in a fairly decentralized manner, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of building huge power plants, we have lots of local production and maybe the carbon issue will be solved in a similar manner that we have lots of local solutions depending on the environment, depending on the availability of technology. Super exciting.
2: Great. Okay, you guys, I have another one. This one's a little bit lighter, and that is the Wall Street Journal recently had an article that I thought was super intriguing, and it was called The End of Physical Wallets. (laughs) It really made me think of the extent to which we need a wallet anymore. So more and more people are using digital wallets to pay for things. In many places, you can load your transit card onto your phone. I use my phone to get into my hotel room. I use it to get into my car. And so I guess my question for you is... How many years do you think it will be before we all completely jettison our wallets? We just walk out the house. The wallet is a thing of the past.
0: I think we're very close. Yeah. I never have cash with me because my wallet is basically just a bunch of cards. But then I do run into, so you want to buy, I don't know, something small like chewing gum or something like this. Sometimes like the kiosk will not take credit cards. (laughs) And I think that's one of the impediments, right? So this push by Apple and Google to have your driver's license on the phone. I think it's really brilliant, except it would mean every police person would have to have a reader so that they can actually read right. your driver's license and you know verify on the spot. I noticed even just doing a little bit of travel, the ability of authorities to read the QR codes from corona vaccinations, yeah. you go from one jurisdiction to the other. Mm-hmm. And apparently your reader cannot read it. And then it's like totally worthless. So if I have any doubt about us still having to carry cards. It's more on how many institutions, how many businesses will be able to read what we have on the phone.
1: I would be perfectly delighted if physical wallets went away. I don't oh, see any too. like redeeming me quality too. to them at yeah. all. Like, I don't <laughs> see there's any cause. And I think that's where we're going. I think it's fantastic. The big issue is, I think, driver's licenses yeah. and ways in which states are dealing with this is already being pretty progressive. Yeah. I mean, their only kind of downside to this, if I was to look for one, is nostalgia? No, 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 no. I'm done with that. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's to your point, Felix. Like, the taco truck yeah. th- that I go to oh, yeah, sometimes yeah. only takes cash. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. they're going to yeah. be the losers in this world. But you
2: could throw a couple paper bills in your pocket, right? Oh, I no, mean, that's true. Here's why this is really important to me. I will go out to dinner with my husband, and he will come down, and he's looking good. Except he's got this huge wallet <laughs> in his pocket. And you often see men walking around with these... Hu- I mean, I don't want to stereotype, huge, yeah. but it was just huge wallets. It's like, what is in there? <laughs> Although
0: I'm not totally sure that the trends in phones are much better. <laughs> 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 so the true. phones get bigger so and bigger. It's so true. Foldable phones. That is so true. <laughs> okay,
2: thanks guys. Okay, before we do picks tonight, Mihir, you got a couple of emails this week that you wanted to talk about from a couple of our listeners.
1: Yeah, well, as we said at the beginning, interacting with listeners and getting email from them is fantastic. In this particular case, I was alerted to the fact that I used an ethnic slur in the last episode. Specifically, I used the word gypped in the context of my iPhone and the miles I walk. And I had no idea, but that is an ethnic slur of the Roma people. And a couple of listeners pointed that to me, and I'm I really appreciate that. And I'm sorry for having used it.
2: Just for the record, here, I think we're all sorry. I mean, I didn't know the etymology of that word either. And I didn't of know course, the either. minute yeah. you pointed me to that, when somebody article, points it out, you say, "Of course it does." Oh my goodness! <laughs> of course. And I felt right. Stupid, and I felt very, very bad.
1: It also really struck me about the emails that we got. So there were a couple of tough emails, but there was one that I just wanted to read briefly because I thought it was just kind of a model of the way to approach these issues. What the email says is. Noticed you used the term "jip" to describe getting cheated of some steps by your iPhone. Wanted to be sure you knew the etymology of the word and gave me the article. If you did not intend to demean Roma people or culture by using the word, your meaning might've been misunderstood by your listeners. And I thought that was just a wonderfully kind and generous way to teach me a really important lesson, not just the narrow lesson of, "jip" is a really problematic word, but also the broader lesson of when people make mistakes of this kind, approaching them with that generosity of spirit is a really productive way yeah. to address these things. Yes. So yeah, learning all the time. Our
2: listeners are amazing. Absolutely. So thank yeah. you for steering us to that article.
0: It makes you feel good to be given this learning opportunity.
2: That's a nice thing to do. Yeah. It's so humbling to do this, isn't mm. it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, just when you start to develop a little swagger, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm <laughs> yeah, such exactly. an idiot. Um, okay, so let's do picks. Can I go first? Yeah. yeah, of course. Okay. What do you have? So I've read this book by Kim Stanley Robinson. It is called Ministry for the Future. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Apparently, he is a really prominent science fiction writer. Oh. But he's also part of this subgenre of writers doing what's called cli-fi, climate fiction. Hmm. And one of the hallmarks of his writing, and this subgenre as a whole, is he tries to hew to as much real science and real technology as possible, but just pushes it a little bit further into the future so what you're reading is not entirely fantastical. So Ministry for the Future refers to an international organization whose mission it is to advocate for future citizens, who are going to have to live with the effects of climate uh change. And the reason it's fascinating is because, on the one hand, it involves questions of policy and international governance. Here it also involves international finance. (laughs) But then it also switches back and forth to some really devastating vignettes of people trying to survive Mm. severe climate events in different parts of the world. So, say, a chapter focused on a refugee camp – or a chapter about a woman in LA trying to survive a flooding event, or the opening scene, which takes place in this small city in Uttar Pradesh, India. Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh. Okay. Yeah. Where an extreme heat wave hits, and the scene is just so harrowing. Yeah. So it mm-hmm. feels futuristic, but not that far futuristic. Uh, it I mean, the best science yeah. fiction, I think, is the kind that really makes you reflect on your current reality, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what this book does. So it's called. Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson. Sounds great. Okay, and then Felix, what do you have?
0: I wanted to recommend a collection of songs. It's a CD called Songs of Guest Workers. And this refers to the songs of Turkish immigrants when they moved from Turkey to Germany in the 1960s, 1970s to the 1990s. And German history is fascinating in the sense that 1961, the wall goes up mm-hmm. and West Germany is in this amazing boom. Mm. So they do this treaty with Turkey that essentially is a tool to recruit labor for mostly The jobs that no one else wants to do in Germany. And it takes over a decade for Germany to even allow the workers to bring their families. In the beginning, of course, everybody thinks, we're going to Germany, we're going to make a bunch of money, and then we move back to Turkey. (laughs) And so often, it doesn't (laughs) really happen. And they're now the largest minority group in Germany. And the songs are songs that were captured on cassette tape. And it's Turkish music, clearly, but it's often sung in German. Oh, Where
2: do you find it? This music <laughs> <laughs> I love
0: reading about music you know like I recommended yes, yes, Turkish yes. musicians before <laughs> yes, I just I don't yes. really know what it is about Turkish music I find it incredibly beautiful and many of the songs are around this theme of of course missing your home but now being in a different place and the different place is sort of exciting and mm-hmm. it captures something really essential mm-hmm. and
1: I think that stood out for me oh,
2: Felix that is a beautiful recommendation Here you're going to have to top this.
1: I'm pretty sure I can't, but I'll try. So that is a great recommendation, Felix. I have maybe two, not really recommendations. First, I want to double down on last week. I got some great feedback on Bank of Papa. And so I am putting out a plea to listeners that if you want to help me make this happen, and you are maybe a graphic designer, maybe you know how to secure little books, Contact me and let's see if we can make this happen. You're
2: going to have a side gig. This is your side gig. I'm going to have a side gig. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So, but my real recommendation is that as longtime listeners will know, I and I think Young Me, you too love succession and it's coming back. Yes. But the reason to love succession is because it is a great drama about two of the greatest things in the world, which is families. And the way it intersects with business. <laughs> I thought family and food are the two greatest <laughs> things on the planet. <laughs> family
2: for sure, but business, really? <laughs> business is like
1: its core to society. Anyway, but if you really want the classic that mixes family and business, it's an older book that I reread over the summer, and it's just spectacular. And it is by Thomas Mann, and it's Buddenbrooks. It is oh, the original yeah. kind of yeah. family and business yeah, that's true. novel. Yes. And it is so good. Hmm. So if you want the low-tech version of succession <laughs> oh, no. with the drama of family and business, I recommend this older book by Thomas Mann called *Buddenbrooks*, And it has all the ideas of, like, you know, the great founder yeah. and then the decay yeah. over has the generations. The drama. At the drama. drama. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really fantastic. It's fantastic. So that's my recommendation. Felix,
2: do you notice that Mihir has become a complete anti-technology Luddite? Yes. I think he did trampolines. Yes. And then he's doing <laughs> Bank of Papa. Yeah and then he did Legos <laughs> and now he's yeah. doing
1: I'm going old school yeah I'm going I'm old, old dusty book
2: yeah <laughs> okay we need to wrap it is late okay thanks everyone for listening we'll be back next week with another episode this is After Hours from the TED Audio Collective